Hey, Gautam, how are you? Hey, I'm good, Amy. It's nice to connect with you. Yeah, big day today. Um, so before we get into COVID D-Day, is what people are calling it, I wanted to talk to you about your background a little bit, um, and then we can get into the meat of it. Um, so you grew up in India, and are you from Delhi originally? I am, yeah. Born and raised in Delhi. Spent most of my uh, childhood growing up in Delhi, that's right. What part of Delhi are you from? Mostly in South Delhi, so in kind of the Chanakipuri area, close to IIT, kind of Green Park, Hoskas. So yeah, South Delhi for the most part. Got it. So I uh, lived, my husband and I lived in Gurgaon for 20 months. He works for Pepsi. Um, and I, I got to, I worked in GK2, I think. So I would take, my driver would drop me off there. It was like an hour drive. And I, you know, I was on the roads every day in Delhi and I still cannot understand the map of that city. <laughs> it's just crazy, right? It is. And it's growing. It's expanding, you know, by the day, as far as I can tell. Yeah, it's just, it was, it was a great experience. We did 18 months there and then 18 months in Bangalore. Um, and then, you know, you went to college in Delhi and then you went to IIM in Ahmedabad. So were you always on the route to go to business school? You know, pr probably not. I think um, growing up kind of in middle school, I really thought I would be a doctor. You know, like many good Desi kids think that you want to be a doctor or an engineer. But I really kind of liked the element of helping people and then feeling good about how that made you feel. So, I, uh, But then I think I got lazy. In high school, I got lazy and I, I got to understand better what it takes to go to medical school and the numbers of years of training and residency and specialization. Um, I have an older brother who kind of went down the business route. So he did economics, he went to business school, he went into consulting. And I kind of liked the fact that his path was really quick, didn't seem too painful. And second, he was making really good money right out of business school. So I think I got lazy and greedy. And I was like, I'm going to take the shortest path to uh, starting to earn a paycheck. Well, Gautam, let, I would not say lazy or greedy because from what I know uh, of in India, the India education system, it's insanely competitive. And I mean, you got into one of the best business schools there, which I'm not even sure what the rate is of acceptance. I'm sure it's very low. So you, you still did okay. Thank you for saying <laughs> and, how, and, and how was business school for you? Business school was great. I mean, it was in some ways, like you said, the education system in India is pretty intense, right? So two years of business school to me felt like boot camp, felt like an intense boot camp. I think in the U.S., business school is a little bit more relaxed. I think the emphasis on grades is a bit lower. But also, I think the one big difference, Amy, is in India, most kids back then used to go to business school straight out of undergrad. So you really had no clue about the real world. You didn't ever really had a real job before going to business school. Right. So all you knew was studying and grades and academics and exams. So I think we approached business school with a very different mindset. And then, like you mentioned, I am Ahmedabad, I was lucky to get in, is one of the premier business schools. So their educational bar was really high. And right. the companies that you were trying to recruit with, you know, had a really high bar. So you really had to like work hard to make sure you got placed in a good company, you know, with a good role and a good paycheck. So two years, pretty intense, but some of my best friendships and most fun memories of campus life are from my days in Ahmedabad, for sure. Yeah, so what you said is exactly on point. So my husband, Parth, also went to um, HBS two years after Harman, so we know Harman through that. Um, and I, I think you're right. I think getting in to the Harvard and Stanford's here is like next to impossible. But then the experience during business school is very different. 
Um, every time I would go visit him, my husband, I'd be like, are you guys studying? Like, what's happening here? <laughs> I mean, they do, of course, you know, but it is a very different experience. Yeah, there's so many parties and immersion programs and traveling around the world, right? Yeah, yeah. The the uh, the travel and that adding on to the loans, I was like, oh, this is going to be a fun chunk of money, but totally worth it. And it's about the networking, right? Like you said, I think you guys just network and, and you meet such good people that you you stay friends with for the rest of your life. Exactly. And honestly, you know, whatever I've done in my working life, where I am professionally, I owe that all to, you know, um, to business school, you know, that gave me my first break. And then of course, it's what you make of it. But that first break, that first job out of school is really important. Of course. So that first break for you was BCG, correct? That's correct. Yeah. Boston Consulting Group. So how did, were you always, did you want to come to the States or did it just happen? Honestly, it just happened. I had never lived outside of India. I had traveled, you know, we'd taken, you know, brief vacations. Um, I'd spent a few years growing up when I was really little outside of India because my dad was posted in Africa for a while. But I had never really thought about moving full time and, and living and working outside of India. I was fortunate in that the year I graduated from business school, um, BCG, along with a number of other firms at that time, were hiring from Indian business schools for roles in the US um, as well as in Europe. So really lucky timing wise. And then when I ended up getting an offer from BCG, they pretty much said, you know, we're happy to offer you any of the offices that are recruiting. So I could have joined in Mumbai or Delhi, um, but I had the option for New York and Singapore and Munich as well. So I was like, okay, you know what? Go straight to the Big Apple and dive in head first. You know, I was super scared about moving to New York because of all the stories you hear. Um, But yeah, so I landed here in September of 2000. And so I literally just completed 20 years of living in in New York. So kind of unexpected, but in hindsight, I've loved every minute of it. Hey, I I personally think, and I lived in India total for three years, I think if you can make it in India, (laughs) I mean, they say that about New York, but I also think if you can make it in India, you can make it anywhere. I totally agree. Especially growing up in Delhi, there's a lot of similarities with the big hustle and bustle of the city, chaotic traffic. So I think Delhi conditioned me well to surviving. Yes, definitely. So you did BCG for about 10 years. That's and, right. And then you joined Pfizer uh, about 2010, right? So can you tell me about your journey uh, at Pfizer from 2010 till now? Yeah, absolutely. So it it was really my time at BCG that set me up for the role at Pfizer because I went into consulting pretty much as a generalist. I didn't have any particular sector expertise. Um, I didn't, you know, fancy myself as an expert in consumer goods or, or life sciences or what have you. At BCG, I ended up doing a lot of work in the healthcare space. So I consulted to um, a large number of big pharma companies, biotech companies, really got to know that space. Um, and so one of the One of the companies that I advised for many years was Pfizer. So it actually was a client of mine for many years. And that's really a great way both for you to build your credibility and build your trust with another company, but then also for you to get to know what that company is really like and you get to work very closely with senior leaders. You really think about what is the the purpose that that company exists for, what are their objectives and goals, and where can you add value? So for me, the shift from consulting to Pfizer felt pretty natural because I already knew kind of what I was getting into. I knew a lot of the leaders. I knew the person who was going to be my boss who recruited me into Pfizer. So pretty smooth transition. Um, And then the last 10 plus years, like I said, I moved in 2010. So I just crossed 10 years at Pfizer. It's been an amazing ride. And it's been really nice to be part of the journey of a company. And Pfizer has gone through a lot in the last decade. They've kind of reinvented themselves as an innovation-driven, R&D-focused science company. 
Previously, Pfizer was much more known as a sales and marketing powerhouse, so really good commercial um, capabilities, ability to really promote their drugs effectively, um, which is still a key strength, and that's an important strength in our business in order to educate physicians and patients. But we weren't always seen as an innovation company, a science company. Traditionally, a lot of our products were actually bought in through acquisition. So we would acquire other big companies, we would get their pipeline, we would help the drugs get over the finish line, and then we would commercialize them, which was kind of our strength. But when I came in in kind of 2010, um, I came in under a new head of R&D. A new head of R&D had actually come from an external acquisition, as, as happens sometimes. And his mission was to really turn around the R&D ship, really make sure we hit the reset button on productivity. We're making smart decisions on our science. We're being much more objective and unbiased about the investments we make and really kind of following the science as opposed to, you know, chasing, you know, some um, unrealistic dreams. So that journey has been amazing. And I'm happy to say that out of the 10 years at Pfizer, eight of my years were on the R&D side, working closely with the head of R&D. So I really had a ringside seat and got to help influence how we turned that R&D productivity around, how we tried to establish ourselves as a more science-driven company and had to make some hard choices along the way. Um, but now we're really seeing the fruit of that come out. And honestly, the current situation that the world finds itself in needs more companies that are kind of innovation and, and science-driven. So a terrific journey. And then the last two years, um, I changed gears a little bit. So I'm more um, in a corporate role right now. So I'm leading kind of an end-to-end -end strategy team where we support all kinds of strategic initiatives um, at the corporate level, uh, but also for our commercial business units, as well as for the R&D division. So I still get to you know, work closely with my R&D colleagues and help them define their business strategies for the future, prioritize investments across different therapeutic areas, diseases that they want to work on, and also um, look at how they want to invest and accelerate individual R&D programs, right? Because not all programs are, are necessarily equal. Right, yeah, right. Great, uh, great ride so far. That's fantastic. Well, you can also tell your parents that you, you're still kind of like attached to the medical field, you know? So, so, so that, yeah, yeah, you can, you can fake your way into being a doctor. So that, that worked out. Um, so today, is it, are you guys calling today D-Day? What is Pfizer calling today? Like, what should we call this historic day? You know, it's ironically, it's actually a very quiet day on the on the Pfizer networks today. We had we had um, some good hectic activity on Friday night. Um, some really nice emails that came out from our CEO and also other leaders, just thanking everyone um, for the work that they've been doing over the yeah. past nine or ten months. So Friday night was a bit of hectic excitement heading into the weekend. Today's actually been pretty quiet. I think today it's all about all right. Let's execute. Let's make sure you know, production is going well, make sure these things are getting out to people where they need them. Um, so yeah, kind of a anticlimactic Monday morning, but that's totally fine. Well, how, how has the environment been at Pfizer the past nine months? Is it just been complete, like a complete circus? You know what? Um, I, I'm privy to some of the circus and I know a lot of colleagues have been really working intensely, you know, nights, weekends, even more than usual. I mean, scientists in general tend to work 24-7 because you know, science and experiments move at a different pace. Um, so I haven't seen all of the, the the necessarily the craziness, but I've seen some of that. But more than that, I think what's been palpable for me, Amy, is just it's completely reinvigorated the company in terms of our sense of mission and purpose. I mean, as a life science company making life-saving drugs and vaccines, you always have that, right? But I think this one has just kind of propel that to a whole new level where the entire world is kind of watching 
not just us, but also other companies who are developing vaccines and treatments for COVID-19. And then I believe the technology that we're using, um, which is this, you know, new mRNA technology, which no other vaccine to date has been approved using this technology. I think that gave us a lot of confidence in being able to generate not only a high level of protection and this high level of immunity, but also a pretty consistent and stable response across age groups, across ethnicities, et cetera. Again, the big caveat there, Amy, is always it's early days, right? We have a few months of data on the trial. We, we need to follow these patients for many more months. We need to be able to continue these trials to get more data. But right now, it looks really good from the initial results, like you suggest. And no matter how you cut it, it seems to be you know highly efficacious and, and pretty safe for everyone. Right. So I want to go back to the beginning a little bit. When did Pfizer start the clinical trials of the vaccine? And then obviously, besides the urgency of time, how were these clinical trials unique compared to others? Yeah, no, great question. So we, um, just to quickly recap on the timeline, we announced the partnership with BioNTech back in March. So this is a small German biotech company with whom we already had an existing partnership. So that allowed us to have a dialogue with them very quickly um, and be able to strike up a partnership specifically for um, you know COVID-19 vaccines. So March, we announced a partnership. April, we started dosing the first clinical trial out in Germany. Um, in May, we dosed the first set of volunteers and subjects in the US. So the US trial started back in May. And then, you know, we kind of got um interim, you know, we got initial trial results in kind of the June and July timeframe. Late July, we then chose which was going to be our primary vaccine candidate. So in the beginning, we were testing multiple candidates because you're not quite sure which one is going to be the most effective and the safest. Um, and so in late July, we then finally made a decision around which was going to be our lead candidate, which was going to be the main vaccine that we would take into the big phase three trial. Um, and then we started the phase three trial also in late July. So made the decision, quickly got into the large phase three trial. This is a trial where um, we enrolled 44,000 people. Initially, it was 30,000, but then we grew the number. Um, so this is a huge trials with tens of thousands of people. Um, and then we started getting efficacy results in the early November timeframe. And then I believe, if I'm not wrong, November 20th, we ended up filing for emergency use approval in the U.S. And then December 10th, the um, FDA advisory committee met uh, to discuss the results. And then December 11th, we got the emergency use authorization in the US. Okay. And so then are there, besides the FDA, are there independent vaccine ex experts weighing in on this as well? Absolutely. So there's two sets of independent groups, I would say here, that um, play a big role in moving these vaccines forward. One is an independent, what we call data monitoring committee. So it's a committee of external experts, which are not employed by Pfizer, and they're the ones who get access to those interim results as they're coming out. Um, because, you know, if you're aware, most clinical trials tend to be blinded. So you don't know exactly which patients are getting the, the vaccine, which patients are getting the placebo. And that's done deliberately so that there's no bias introduced and we're not making, you know, any choices or we're not showing data based on any kind of knowledge of the, um, the actual trial. So the independent data monitoring committee is the one who gets the results they get to see the results unblinded for the first time. And that's when they're able to make determinations of whether you should continue the trial or not, whether it's looking positive or not. And then the company executives get, get access to that data. So one level of kind of independent oversight is this data monitoring committee. And then when the FDA is looking to make a decision about whether to approve a vaccine or not, they will typically bring the data in front of an in independent advisory committee. And that's the committee that met last Thursday on December 10th 
they tend to be made up of academics, they tend to be made up of physicians, pediatricians, other experts in the vaccine and immunology space. And they look at the data again, um, they're not employees of the FDA, they're not employees of Pfizer. They then vote on the results and they recommend to the FDA whether or not to approve. Um, that recommendation isn't binding. So the FDA doesn't have to accept the results of their vote, but typically that plays an important role in the FDA's final decision. So is this vaccine the fastest approved vaccine in Pfizer history? Definitely, definitely in Pfizer history. Um, I'm guessing it may be the first vaccine approved period, but, you know, don't hold me to that. But definitely Pfizer history, you know, the fastest from kind of idea to an approval and distribution. And would you have any idea how many scientists, doctors were working on this vaccine this year? From hundreds, Pfizer? Hundreds, hundreds of scientists. From around, from around, from around the, world. the world. I mean, a lot of our vaccine research efforts are actually um, based on the East Coast, you know, in a small town uh, outside of New York City, a place called Pearl River. So lots of scientists there. But then also remember scientists in our partner company out in Germany. So people working 24-7, leveraging time zones. And then if you think about, you know, hundreds, if not maybe thousands of people also involved in running clinical trials. So you have clinical trial managers and you have contract research organizations who helped us conduct our trial across many different countries and continents. And then you think about the production people, people in the factories who are setting up the equipment, testing the equipment. This is a brand new technology, like I said, for this vaccine. So literally thousands of people across the globe in multiple companies, in multiple disciplines, you know, having to come together to make this happen, right? It's uh, it's nothing short of a miracle. I can't even imagine. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong. And then by the end of the year, there'll be enough vaccination for 20 million people? That, that's right, I believe. So literally within a matter of days this week, um, about 600 something distribution centers across the country will receive shipments of the vaccine. Um, they're being allocated based on the the age pop in the population of the different states. So based on, you know, the proportion of elderly people in the different states and healthcare workers. But initial shipments will arrive this week at the at the major centers. And then by the end of this year, um, we hope to provide the U.S. government with up to 40 million doses, which is enough for 20 million people to get vaccinated because it's two doses um, for the vaccine. So, yep, you're exactly right. For, for vaccine. Yeah. Okay, so let's get into a little bit of the process of getting the vaccine from your doorstep and Pfizer to all the local clinics and hospitals. You know, I've read and we've heard that you have to keep the vaccine at is it negative 94 degrees that Fahrenheit. And you guys have made these shipping boxes that hold 975 vials of the vaccine, yep. right? With GPS enabled thermal sensors. So how many of these do you currently have? Have you made how many of these shipping boxes do you have? And then once they arrive to the clinics, what how do they store yep. them? No, great questions. So I don't know exactly how many boxes we have, but I think we have enough boxes and enough dry ice. So that's not the rate limiting step. That's not the bottleneck. The bottleneck is just ultimately how quickly can you produce these vaccines, fill them into the vials, and then put them on you know the planes and the trucks that will take them. Um, so the boxes aren't an issue, but I, I have to give a shout out also to the colleagues who helped design that because this is a custom designed you know, suitcase-like box, which has these trays in which you can fit the close to 1,000 vials. Um, each vial has about five doses, so 5,000 doses per container, um, which is enough for obviously 2,500 people to get two shots. Um, and it's packed with dry ice. Um, the main 
pieces of the distribution chain are initially by planes, you know, UPS planes, FedEx planes, other carriers. These planes are basically taking to major hubs across the nation, so major international airports, major um, distribution centers. And then from there, it really becomes, you know, a, a journey by road. So they get loaded onto trucks. They're taken into major hospitals. They're taken into, you know, major healthcare centers within rural communities. And then from there, honestly, I was even reading in one of the journals over the weekend, the National Guard in some states is helping pitch in with this because, as you can imagine, as you get into less densely populated areas, you can't send them a box with necessarily, um, you know, 5,000 vials or 5,000 doses. They don't even have 5,000 people in some of these communities. So there, some of these containers may get broken down into smaller batch sizes and you have individuals, you know, county health officials, National Guard people who are literally shipping these smaller batches into local clinics and nursing nursing homes, et cetera. So quite a production from the big shipments in the planes, big trucks, and then broken down to maybe, you know, individual vehicles and people's cars, you know, shipping them to these communities. That is a lot of logistics. There's a lot of logistics. To deal with. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be interesting. Um, and so I just saw that the first person, I think in the U.S., was a nurse in Queens that got it. Did you hear I this? I not even read Today, that. Today, this morning? Been, uh, <laughs> no, I've been trying to keep up with the news until we talk. So I think that's, if I, I think that's, that's correct. The first person to receive it in the U.S. Um, was a nurse in Queens. And, you know, there's a hierarchy who, of who gets the shots first. For the first people being the first line, uh, frontline workers, uh, was Pfizer part of that decision, or is that just is that the government's decision? I, I believe not. I think it's really the government's decision. We may have played a role in advising them and how to think about it, but it's really a government decision on how they want to allocate. And I believe it starts with, like you said, kind of frontline healthcare workers, doctors, nurses. Um, it then goes to right. you know staff and and residents in long term care facilities, nursing homes, because you're seeing a lot of the mortality and the deaths are happening in in those communities. And then I believe it's first responders, so firefighters, policemen who are either out there for their jobs being exposed every day, or in many cases, they're actually helping also transport COVID patients um, in an emergency into hospitals and ICUs. So that's kind of the pecking order. And then after that, it really begins kind of an age-based distribution. So older populations right. and then more, more younger populations. And then interspersed within those age cohorts are also people who may be younger, but have you know, predefined conditions like diabetes and heart disease and obesity, because we know that they're also more more vulnerable, even if they're younger. Right. So, so basically, people like me and my husband will be at, at the end of that pecking order. I mean, we're, we're we're kind of lucky to be, considering you know we're helping, we're good. But I told him, I'm like, we might not be getting this till maybe next summer if we're lucky. Um, so Pfizer is a two dose shot, right? That you take about three weeks apart. So. I guess, first of all, how does Pfizer or the government plan to keep track of that? Uh, is there going to be like a centralized da database that you guys know of? Are, are you in charge of that as a government, the states? It's really the, it's really the states, local health, author uh, health authorities, as well as um, the hospitals and the clinics who administer it. So I think it's really hard because there is no nationalized, centralized database where you can track this information. It has to be done at a local level. Amy, think about it a little bit like when you have young kids, they have a preset vaccination schedule, right? And their local pediatrician or their local general practitioner has to kind of keep those vaccine records at a local level in their computers. And then you have to show that to schools to make sure that, you know, you're up to date with your vaccinations. So my understanding is 
that different hospitals and local communities are coming up with their systems. So I've heard anything from, you know, a simple yellow card, like a physical paper card, which will show the date of your first vaccine, the date of your second vaccine, you take that home when you go, um, and then you kind of maybe you know, keep that somewhere prominent so you remember to go back in on your second date. Um, to some hospitals who are a little bit more sophisticated, they have databases, electronic databases, where they will record you know, all of the vaccinations, and then the system will trigger reminders by email or by text for you to come in for your second dose. So my sense is that healthcare workers and hospitals are quite used to dealing with the system. Um, so that's probably not going to be the biggest issue. But to your point, we have to be disciplined, right? Because otherwise, the effectiveness of the vaccine is only going to go so far. Right. I, I, and that's my next question, whether you guys are, there's a fear that people won't go back for that second dose, whether they forget or they just feel like, oh, it's fine. You know, just just human error, right? Of not, of not remembering to go or whatever. So hopefully the text and email reminders help with that. Um, and what are some of the things that we don't know about this vaccine? <laughs> if, if we can break that yeah, down. Break that down. Um, you know, yeah. I, I would say it's always good to be, it's always good to be kind of humble and careful, right? So we know many things and I think that's given the government's confidence to approve it, at least for emergency use, right? And that's why it's a focused approval for emergency use only. Um, you know, some of the things we don't know are, you know, one, how long the effectiveness is going to last because we've only been testing it in humans um, for a few months. So will the level of um, immunity in your body, will the level of antibodies actually persist for many more months? Is it something that gives you multi-year protection, like, you know, a polio vaccine, which you take once in your life? Or is it going to be something that you need an annual booster shot for, like you do with the flu vaccine? So the duration of the immunity and the duration of the protection is one thing we don't know for sure. I think the other thing we don't know is, you know, are there going to be some unexpected side effects? We, you know, we followed these patients for two to three months. It seems really safe and well tolerated in that first period. Now, six months later, nine months later, could something unexpected pop up? Absolutely. And so we need to be vigilant about that. So that would be kind of maybe number two. And then perhaps a third one is, you know, if you do get a vaccine, what does that really mean in terms of the level of contagiousness, right? So if you get infected, maybe you're protected, but can you pass that on to someone else who's not been vaccinated, for example? So I think what that herd immunity looks like, you know, whether the vaccine actually helps prevent you from being a carrier, even if you're asymptomatic, you know, those are still some unanswered questions that we need to get into. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been reading about some of the things that, um, you know, we don't quite know yet. And the the one one thing that I, I that stood out was we don't know if someone who has been vaccinated can pass it on, which is a whole other issue. I'm like, yeah, let's get to step one first. I know. Um, and then, what about the? What would you say to the people that are scared of taking the vaccine? Because there are a lot of anti-vaccinator people out there saying, you know what, this is new. We don't trust this. We're not gonna. We're gonna just take our chances. Yeah. What would you yeah, say? Yeah, it, it is really unfortunate. And this is something that has been, you know, a long running debate and a long running for, you know, almost a, a bit of a battle that the healthcare community and the pharmaceutical community has tried to fight, right? Because, you know, we do believe that the benefits of vaccinations from a public health perspective far outweigh any of the risks and the downsides, right? And you think about how many life-threatening diseases have literally been wiped off the face of the earth thanks to vaccination, thanks to herd immunity. And if that weren't the case, I think we'd be living in a very different world. So that's just point number one, just at a high level, there's a very, there's a greater public health issue than 
kind of the individual issues around concerns of the vaccine. Having said that, it's perfectly valid for people to be concerned, right? And particularly with something that has been developed in such record time, you want to be cautious about how that's been done. I think I can safely say, and um, all the pharmaceutical companies have said this, as well as the regulatory agencies like the FDA have said it, that they have not cut any corners in development. Yes, we've gone fast. We've done things in creative ways where we've done things in parallel instead of doing them sequentially. So there's a number of things that have gone into cutting down that timeline. But the one thing that hasn't gone into cutting down the timeline is cutting corners on the science and, and, and compromising on the safety and the quality of the vaccine. So I think that's another one. And then the last point I'll say on that is we absolutely need kind of a huge education campaign, particularly for this vaccine. Um, and so we're starting to make some efforts in that space. I know we're going to collaborate with other vaccine manufacturers and the governments to make sure there's both education of the healthcare community, so educating physicians and doctors and nurses so that they can educate their patients, but also some direct-to-patient um, uh, education and, and telling them about the processes that we use in order to develop the, the vaccine. Uh, because you can develop a great vaccine, we can get it out there, those ultra-low temperatures, but if people don't take it, then we're not going to see the benefits of it. Yeah. And I also think, you know, the way this is being distributed to local clinics and hospitals, it's not like, you know, the public has to go to these scary, like, camps and go get their shots, you know, it's like getting the flu right, shot. Right, exactly. and, I, and I assume Pfizer and the government wants to make this seem like a normal shot, which it is, which, you know, it's a new shot, but yeah, it's nothing, there's nothing scary. scary. There's nothing atypical. It's like any other vaccine. Um, you know, the other point I would make is, again, for people who I guess are generally hesitant or concerned about it, you know, for something like this, where they've seen um, an infectious disease that literally has shut down the world, has impacted people's lives, has, you know, caused so many deaths, has impacted economies for years to come, people have lost jobs. I also feel like if you're someone who doesn't buy into vaccines, I could sort of understand it that at some level, if you felt that that particular infection wasn't as deadly or it wasn't as contagious or it wasn't as widespread. But then when you see something like COVID, I would hope that at least some people on the margin would be more quickly convinced because of the the devastating downsides of, of not being protected, right? So that's just my own opinion, but um, I do hope that that will help convince at least a sl sliver of people who typically would not want to take a vaccine. Right. Um, and is there any plans to work with any other companies in the future? I think you were saying educational purposes, but like companies like Moderna and Johnson and Johnson who are also developing vaccines. Are you guys, is there any plans to collaborate on anything uh, in the next year? Uh, nothing specific that I can think of, but I know that the, the whole pandemic situation has in some ways triggered a whole new level of partnership and collaboration. Um, both in terms of the willingness and openness to work with companies that you normally would compete with. Um, so, for example, I remember our CEO in the early days of the pandemic came out with the five-point plan. And many elements of the five-point plan were basically saying, if there are small companies out there who believe that they have an interesting technology, we're willing to open up our labs to them. We're willing to open up our production facilities to them. We can help them run clinical trials because we know that small companies sometimes are doing amazing science but they don't have the scale and the experience to, to get a product to market, right? Many companies haven't gotten a product to market before. And that was kind of the case with our partner, BioNTech, as well. Um, I know we've also announced, for example, you may recall Amy Gilead is a company who was very quickly able to find a drug called remdesivir, which is an antiviral. So it's not a vaccine, but it helps you treat patients who do acquire. 
So Gilead is a relatively smaller company compared to Pfizer. And so we struck a deal with them to actually help produce remdesivir in some of our manufacturing facilities. So I feel like the industry really stepped up in being very open to kind of sharing its capabilities, sharing its capacity, not worrying too much about how we're going to split the profits and the money. So, you know, that's been a good development in this space. Yeah, that's amazing. And and just to be clear, the vaccine is free for the public, correct? Because the government bought it from yeah, Pfizer. My understanding is that the U.S. government has said that whether or not you have insurance, you will not have to pay in order to get your vaccine. Good. One 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 thing the government has done right, right? <laughs> and then in terms of the uh, Operation Warp Speed, have you guys worked closely with them? Um, only to the extent of just getting advice in terms of you know what the government is going to need to see in terms of um, a, a vac for a vaccine to be successful. So you know we worked very closely with the FDA on what are their their you know guidelines for this vaccine. So what's the percentage of effectiveness they would need to see? How much safety data they would need to see? You know, what are the particular criteria for emergency use approval versus full approval for the mass public? So only to that extent. But I think as has been widely covered in the press, we were one of the companies that didn't take any direct investment from the government because, you know, we, we just right. felt that we could, you know, move very quickly and move at our own speed um, if we didn't necessarily take that funding. I read that your CEO didn't want to be slowed down by by any government interaction. Um, and plus, I, I assume you guys don't really need the money. So <laughs> that's probably part of it. Um, so I, I know Operation Warp Speed said that um, we need 70% of the population to have true herd immunity. And they mentioned that that could probably happen by May. Is that what Pfizer is saying as well? I don't think we have an official point of view on that. So I wouldn't want to speculate. I, I just think uh, I would say my own opinion is it's possible, but it really depends on a whole bunch of things. It depends on how many more vaccines can get approved quickly because you need, I think, multiple vaccines out there because only then can you get up to the production volume that we need in order to immunize, you know, that proportion of the population. So I think it really depends on how many more vaccines show positive data, how many of them can get approved quickly, can they produce enough doses and distribute enough doses out there, do enough people, to your earlier question, do enough people actually sign up to take the vaccine because if you don't um, if you don't get those 70% of people being willing to take the shot. So I would say there's a lot of factors that need to go right for us to get from here to herd immunity, but we're absolutely on track to get there because now at least you're seeing a few vaccines that have shown positive data. And, you know, like you said, we probably have the first person immunized in the U.S. already outside of the trial. Yeah, yeah, it looks like it. Um, and with with the the Biden transition team coming in now, ha how has that, is that, affecting you guys at all in any way or is it business as usual? I think it's pretty business as usual. I think, you know, every, you know, administration has their own nuances and their kind of things that they're, they're good at or not. But in general, I think that the dialogue and the partnership with the FTA and the CDC has been really productive. At the end of the day, I've learned in my 20 years working with the healthcare industry, you know, when you get the scientists in the room and you get the physicians in the room, you know, they talk science, they talk medicine, they tend not to talk politics. So I'm really encouraged by the fact that the dialogue between the people who really matter in terms of making sound scientific decisions, that's been going really well. So I assume that momentum will continue even with the Biden uh, you know, administration coming in. Uh, but I think the people who are really making those decisions right now, and you've seen that, right? The timing of the approval, you know, uh, they moved quickly after the advisory committee on Thursday. Um, so I'm really encouraged by that. 
That's great. Um, so then I also read that the U.S. government had locked down 100 million doses. Um, but then Pfizer had asked the U.S. government to lock down an extra 100 million. Uh, but for some reason, the U.S. government turned that offer down, even though they didn't have to put money down. Do you know anything about that and why that happened? Honestly, I don't know the behind the scenes. Okay. I do. I do know that um, that they uh, the U.S. government signed a contract for 100 million doses, and then up they have an option of up to 500 million more doses in 2021. Okay. So there's more volume than they can access over time. Um, you know, at some level, think about when these contracts were being signed. You know, there were many vaccine players out there. Many of them were tracking quite well. You know, at that point, it was hard to probably speculate which vaccine is going to be most effective, which one end up, ends up being first to market, et cetera. So there were probably a lot of unknowns out there which may have entered into the decision-making, but honestly, I'm not privy to the actual dialogue that the government had behind the scenes. Okay. Well, ho- hopefully we haven't lost uh, much time much time there and uh, we can all just keep on going with the vaccines. The the yeah. Yes, yes. We will wait, we will wait in line. Um, so we're both obviously from India. Just out of curiosity, what's the timeline over there for vaccines? You know, I was actually uh, actually reading something this morning. It seems like the Indian government is also looking to move quite quickly. I know that um, Pfizer, Pfizer and Moderna have both also applied for emergency use authorization in India. So similar kind of logic to say for a focused set of the population who are more at risk and exposed, can we get uh, emergency use approval? So that may be coming. I, I hope that comes and then in addition to that, the Indian government seems to be working with some of the vaccine players who have um, slightly easier supply chain requirements in terms of the cold chain. So maybe not needing such ultra cold temperatures, because, as you know, it's a hot country and the infrastructure may not always be um, good enough to be transporting things at minus 94 degrees Fahrenheit. So a few of the other vaccines that are in development do have more traditional requirements like standard refrigeration. Um, So I know they're actively in dialogue with those companies. So fingers crossed, hopefully large quantities of of vaccines can be available in India as well. And um, seems like the government is trying to move quickly and, and, you know, make those agreements where needed. Fingers crossed. Um, And so, you know, the first vaccination was done in the UK. Um, and I think Canada was next to approve. So. Is that correct? Is that and then, and I think the U.S. Is, has been third. Is there any part of this Pfizer? Is there any part of you guys, the team, that feels like, man, I wish the U.S. was first? Honestly, honestly, I don't think uh, personally it didn't cross my mind. I don't think it crossed okay. anyone's mind. If 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 anything, I feel like. Just because you guys are an American-based yeah, company, yeah, yeah. even though we have we actually have R and D sites in the UK as well, but um, we're truly global. And I think, if anything, it was nice to see a country moving quickly. And in some ways, that I think further heightened the sense of urgency across other countries as well. So that can that's you know doesn't hurt. It's not a bad thing. But yeah, I don't think yeah. we were necessarily sad that the US wasn't. Before. Okay, just 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 asking as an Indian American, I was like, oh man, I wish we're we were so competitive, first, but, you know, right? All good. I <laughs> know. Uh, Welcome to yeah. the U.S. Um, so, well, uh, two more questions. One, what is what does next year look like for you at Pfizer? <sighs> um, you know, I think I think even though what what's happened today and in the last few days with the approval and the distribution huge milestone, right? I think a lot of people are breathing a big sigh of relief that it's kind of getting over that finish line. But in some ways, it's really the beginning of the journey, if you think about it, right? Everything to now has been right. kind of 
conceptual, theoretical. Yes, we're working on R&D. Now I think the rubber meets the road. You know, can we scale up the production as we hope to and as we've promised? You know, can we get this medicine safely and with the right conditions out to the you know millions of people who need it? Um, you know, we're working and we've talked about this publicly. We're working on a follow-on formulation of the vaccine, which won't need such ultra-cold um, temperatures. So if we can come up with that new formulation of the vaccine, maybe it becomes even easier to distribute both in the U.S., but also in other countries where the supply chain isn't that well built out. Um, so I guess, long story short, still a lot more work to be done on the vaccine in 2021 in terms of execution and then the next um level of innovation. And then the other point I'll just mention is, like I said earlier, we do need to continue following the patients who've been in those trials, make sure that it continues to look safe. You know, we'll need to do more analysis to understand how long is the protection lasting? Is this going to be an annual vaccine where you need a booster every year? Is this something that gives you protection for like a decade? Um, and then frankly, you're going to see how is the virus going to evolve over time? And, you know, does the same vaccine prove effective or are we going to have to come up with next generation vaccines to deal with the, the changing strains? So basically, you're not going to get a vacation for the next 10 years. <laughs> not anytime too soon. I'm hoping to get a little downtime uh, over the holidays. I deserve it. Um, and has there, I don't know if you can tell me this, has there been any kind of small internal celebrations in Pfizer at all? Are you, are you guys not allowed to do that yet? <laughs> no, I think, I think in small, in small teams and groups, people have been celebrating. <clears throat> we actually have um, a big leadership meeting coming up in a couple of days this later this week, sort of a year end meeting of the senior leaders. So I'm, I'm suspecting there'll be some toasting and celebrating in, in that as well. Well, uh, well deserved. Yes. And final question. And of course, I know it's your opinion, but from everything you have seen and heard, do you think life will be back to normal this time next year? Uh, I would say yes and no. And I know that's a very uh, okay. politically correct answer, but <laughs> I think yes in that if everything goes to plan and you get these vaccines, not just ours, but others that are successful, if we get them rolled out on schedule and, and can get them out to the people who need them, I think from a public health perspective, we should be looking at a very different December 2021 than we are now. You know, whether or not we had herd immunity, I don't know, but you'd have many more people who are protected and, and have that, that sense of peace of mind, right? I think what won't be back to normal, unfortunately, is kind of lasting impacts, right? Whether it's obviously on families who've suffered losses and setbacks, um, but then certainly on the business side, right? It is going to be a multi-year recovery as a head of a strategy of a big business, you know, we're looking at all kinds of scenarios about how quickly the economy will recover, how quickly demand will pick up, you know, will the huge amount of debt that governments have taken on over the world to provide stimulus, you know, that debt ultimately has to be paid back somehow. So is that going to lead to, you know, cuts in spending on healthcare, cuts in spending on education? So I would say probably not a 12 month recovery from that point of view, but from a public health point of view, hopefully um, a lot better. And then that allows people to reopen economies and people to get back to jobs and things like that. Yeah. I do feel like, you know, it, it does feel like the mask and like less handshaking and all that stuff will kind of still stay around, which is not necessarily a bad thing. You know, I think with the, 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 the namaste, we'll, we'll bring yeah, it so here. So. I was just thinking the other day, I mean, once the vaccine is out there, I hope that all of us will still retain some of the good habits. Like, you know, think about how much hand washing yes. we've been doing and think about, you know, just making sure we give people their personal space and 
you know, things like the flu and other infections will probably be way less if we can just be a little bit more disciplined as a human race. Yes, of course. But of course, my, my parents, my Indian parents are like, you guys are going to be too clean now. You'll be, you won't be able to handle That's a cold. Right. You got to rub your, rub your hand in some dirt, <laughs> That's you know? Right, yeah. Build your immunity, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, build your immunity. So, no, thank you. I really, really appreciate this. This was awesome. It was a, it was a quick one hour rundown on everything, which is what, what I needed. So I appreciate right. your time. 